right. Good morning, Grace Church. We, this morning, are going to be continuing our series through the Gospel of John. So if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And we're going to be continuing our study going through the Gospel of John, really trying to focus on the question of who is Jesus, trying to get a better understanding of who he is, and as a result of who he is, how are we supposed to live as a response to that. So we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. Um, Last week we took a quick pit stop to Philippians where we just heard an amazing message by Pastor Matt on contentment and what it means to have contentment in Christ. Um, But this morning we're going to be going back to the Gospel of John and continuing our series through there. Um, So our passage this morning is going to be John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Um, So a little bit of quick instruction. This is a longer passage. So what I'm going to ask us to do this morning is, in a second, I'm going to ask us to stand, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and then I'm going to stop at verse 13 and ask you guys to join in with me at verses 14 and 15. So, um, and one other quick thing, if you haven't this morning already gotten sermon notes when you walked in, um, and you want sermon notes, they're in the back at the tables, or if you have the app downloaded, you can um, go to the app to find sermon notes that way. It's just a great way to track along with the sermon, write stuff down. I know it's a tool that I utilize a lot, so if you haven't gotten sermon notes and you want sermon notes, you can do that in the back. Um, But if you want to, once the plate has passed you, stand with me and open your Bibles to John chapter 13. And again, I'll read 1 through 13, and you can join in with me at verses 14 and 15. So John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what you have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I told you the earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from earth, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And please join me in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. I know what you may be thinking. Man, we almost made it to chapter 3, verse 16. We almost made it. Today we're going to stop in verse 15, and what we really need to do as we get back into John's gospel is understand what happens in the first 15 verses, so then we're carried forward to understand 
the joy of eternal life that is there described in verses 16 to the end of the passage. And so, friends, uh, the opportunity that we have today, everything in this message is going to drive us to uh, answering two questions at the end, one having to do with what we need to know and the other having to do with what we ought to experience, or rather what is necessary for us to experience. And then finally, a testimony that I want us to hear at the end. And so may the Lord help us to know what we need to know and to experience what we need to experience. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I just ask for your help now. As we study your word, pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us. We have sung of gospel goodness, and I pray now that gospel goodness would flood our hearts and our minds, and that you would be the glad lifter of our heads, and that you would surround us with shouts of deliverance as we study your word together. Dear Jesus, we pray these things in your name and on your authority. Amen. Amen. You take your seats, friends. Thank you. Now, I, I, just, I just want to say at the start, we've got, we've got a lot of ground to cover, uh, these 15 verses, and this is a, what we're really studying is a, is a conversation between Jesus and this man named Nicodemus, and it is, it's a complex conversation. It's an intriguing conversation, but it is a very complex conversation. So let me, let me just start off with a couple of questions that get us to the main point of the passage. Uh, can, can a person change? Is change really possible? Deep, lasting, fundamental, from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet kind of change. Is that possible? Is it possible once, how about this, is it possible to change once we are settled and established in our lives to begin all over again with a fresh start, with a clean slate, changed and renewed at the core of who we are? Of course, we can and do change. We change our clothes, we change our hairstyle, we change where we live, we change our job, we change our hobbies, we change what really matters to us. Of course, we can and we do change. The question is not, though, can we change or even do we want to change? Maybe, you, maybe you're here today and you wandered into church and you are just fed up with you. So it's not really can we change or even ought we to change? It's really what kind of change is necessary. How and why must we change of necessity? These questions have everything to do with this conversation between Jesus and this very famous man named Nicodemus, and everything to do with our families and with our neighbors and with our friends and with the people that we desire to reach with the good news as we try to make disciples of Jesus across the street and around the world. So we're back in John considering who Jesus is and why Jesus came, just like Stephen said. We're going to be in John 3 for a couple of weeks. I would encourage you over the next couple of weeks to be reading through this chapter and seeing this theme of everlasting life and the preciousness of eternal life that comes through faith in Jesus. And so we're going to break down this conversation. And friends, we, there is, um, as we study the first part of this, this conversation with Jesus, and it's, it's interesting. At one point, there's a con- it's a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And we'll learn about who he is in just a second. I keep saying his name, and you may be thinking, I have no idea who that is. Just hold on. We'll explain in just a minute. It's important that we know who he is. But at one point, he just fades from the conversation. And a dialogue becomes a monologue. And Jesus just starts evangelizing us. And he starts telling us the good news. I think the best way to understand this is to do it with three points breaking down the conversation, leading us to two questions that I want to ask at the end. And we just cannot overstate some of the things Jesus says. Like, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. May God help us now. Let's give three, uh, three headings and two questions, friends. First, let's consider the example. The example. Let's start with this conversation by trying to understand who Nicodemus is, uh, why Nicodemus is, um, who, uh, what, he's, what he's given himself to in his life, and, and what he's doing when he comes to Jesus. Um, so we, we see in chapter 1, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, rather, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So this man, Nicodemus, shows up a couple of times in John's gospel. He shows up here in chapter 7 and in chapter 19. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means that he was a, 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 a certified, uh, he's educated, he's devout, he's respected, uh, he was devoted to the synagogue and to life in the synagogue. Uh, he, he's a ruler of the Jews, which probably indicates that this man was a member of what was known as the first century Jewish Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the, was the Jewish ruling class under the superpower of Rome. Uh, it, it, remember, this is a theocracy. God and government are one and the same in first century Israel. And so these were about 70 or so men recognized by the Jewish community who had a certain kind of, uh, a certain kind of authority over, over the people. And so think of uh, the Sanhedrin was the judicial, legislative, and executive branch all rolled up into one. He was a member of that, religious, serious, respected. That's who this man is. Further, if you look at verse 10, verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him in the middle of the conversation, are you, definite article, the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Now, the teacher of Israel seems to be a particular designation. We would say something like, Professor so-and-so, the chair of the chemistry department. It's like a recognized position. That's who it seems to be that Nicodemus is. And so he's respected in this conversation. He's educated. He's devout. He would have been held in high esteem. He's moral. We also see in this conversation that he is clueless. He's staggered. He's puzzled. He's bewildered. Any words you want to use for someone who does not get it, that's Nicodemus. And then we look at verse 2. Here's what he says when he comes to Jesus. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, that sounds incredibly courteous and incredibly kind. Nicodemus, the educated establishment, as it were, approaches Jesus, this itinerant, not professionally trained preacher from Galilee, and pays him a compliment. Is he being smug? Is he simply trying to kindly affirm. I think that's probably what it is. I think Nicodemus is genuinely, genuinely curious about who Jesus is. And, and in essence, in verse 2, Nicodemus says to Jesus, Jesus, we see the power of God at work in you. We see the power of God at work in you. We see we want to affirm the supernatural. But friends, here's what we need to know as we start the conversation. When Nicodemus says in verse 2, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him, we need to see the compliment as a revelation. A revelation revealing how and in what way Nicodemus is an example. He's an example of something, of a theme that has been revealed in John's gospel up to this point. I want you to look with me, if you have your Bible, at the last three verses of chapter 2. Look with me in John chapter 2, and I want you to look in verses 23 to 25. At this stage in the gospel, Jesus is growing in popularity. He's performed two signs, what are called signs in John's gospel. We'll see more of them leading really up to chapter 11. He's turned water into wine, and he's cleansed the temple. 
water into wine, and he's cleansed the temple. And here is John's summary of what happens after that Passover at this stage in Jesus' ministry as people see the signs. I mean, think about it. Turning uh, the, 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 the surge of divine power to turn the substance of water into fresh wine. The other sign is the cleansing of the temple. Jesus showing that the religious institutions and thinking of the day, namely a works-based system dependent upon human morality, needed a fresh cleaning, are startling things. On the one hand, it shows, I come to bring joy and life, the festive shout. And yet, there are massive institutions in first century Palestinian life that need a thorough dismantling. People see this. Here's John's assessment, chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Look at this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they… Now, what did Nicodemus recognize? The signs. Look at the connection. When they saw the what? Signs that he had done. So they see the signs. They affirm the power. And their faith is in what? The word belief is used. Interesting. We've got to unravel this. The word belief is used in verse 23. So they believed something. What did they believe? They believed in the signs. What's a sign do? Point to something else. <laughs> the point of a stop sign is not stare at the sign. The point of a stop sign is stop. And the point of the sign is not, wow, water into wine. It's, wow, the joy of Jesus. Look at John's assessment in verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. Who? Those who believed in the signs. Because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Oh, boy, friends, we cannot trick Jesus. You cannot fool this man. Here's the point. Jesus, they have faith in the signs. Jesus has no faith in their faith. Jesus is not entrusting himself to their entrusting. He does not believe in their belief. Now, we shift right into chapter 3, remembering that the big number 3 and the small number 1 are helpful but not essential. We turn the corner, and what do we have? A man came to Jesus by night named Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? He's an example of this kind of faith. He has faith in the signs. He doesn't have faith in the object of the signs. Nicodemus' problem is most likely is our, is our problem before faith in Christ and is the reason we rejoice in Christ after. He sees and affirms the supernatural, but he has not experienced it. Why does Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Look at the beginning of verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, a couple thoughts. One, he could be in fear of what others would think, so he comes to Jesus at night less crowded, not as much exposure, etc. I don't think that's the case. If you study this man Nicodemus in John's gospel, he is not concerned about what people think at all. He's very free from the, from the opinions of people. Could be that he just wants uninterrupted time with Jesus and he knew that he could get more of that at night. But I think it's more than that. I think, I think it's a certain kind of symbolism. John, in his book, we will see, loves to play with the themes of light and dark. He's going to do it in chapter 3. He's going to say they loved the darkness and they hated the light. He's going to do it 10 or so verses later. 
He comes to Jesus at night. Here would be an example. Jesus' last night before he is arrested and betrayed, Judas betrays him. He runs out of the last, he runs out of the last supper. Jesus says, go do what you're going to do. And John adds this note. Nicodemus runs out. We already know it's, a, it's, it's night. John adds, and it was night. Why do that? He's saying something about the state of Jesus, Judas's heart. Here's the point. I think Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because Nicodemus is a man in the dark. And he doesn't understand. And so, Jesus says what he says. Remember, we, need, we have to, now, as we move through this, we have to keep Nicodemus in mind. He's kind, he needs to be kind of something like a north star. We need, we need to get our bearings based upon him because the questions he asks and the things that he says are, are, are what give shape to how Jesus responds. So first, friends, Nicodemus is an example of what, we, of what some of us may be here today, an example that affirms good things about Jesus, understands that there must be something significant about Jesus but does not have faith in Jesus. There is a, something that must happen for him, and that leads us to number two, the necessity. Secondly, the necessity. And so because of who Nicodemus is and because of who we may be, something is necessary, something staggering, something shocking, but the reality of which makes Christianity Christianity and places most of us, if not all of us here today, along with all other gospel-cherishing churches in our city and around the world, It's the necessity of being born again, the necessity of the new birth. In verse 3, and in response to Nicodemus, and in his faith in signs only, Jesus says, verse 3, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is here that we find this first announcement, at least from the lips of Jesus, of the necessity of the new birth. Language used in the Bible to describe the imparting of new life that God gives to those who are devoid of it. The language of new birth, of being born again, of being born of God, chapter 1, verse 13, we've already been introduced to it, of regeneration, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, regeneration is the act of God imparting new spiritual life to us, saving us and enabling us. And it's here that we find the, the first announcement of it, we must be born again. We hold, as Christians and as a church, if we want to call ourselves Christians, that there is a change that must happen of necessity, a change Jesus demands, a new birth, a new beginning, a fresh start, all the way back to the beginning, brand new, with new life new will, new emotion, new mind, new sensibilities, alive to God. This is what must happen. Friends, this church exists to say that. Be born again. Now, that's crazy. What role did you play in your first birth? I was there. We have five children. I was there for the birth of the three biological ones. And I can tell you, I'll tell you right now, testify from this pulpit right here. Someone was doing a lot of work. It wasn't the children, and it certainly wasn't me. This is the call. We must be born again. In essence, Jesus is face-to-face with Nicodemus. Here's more of an explanation. And it's as though he says, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I am not merely a teacher. I'm a redeemer. I'm not a teacher. I'm a recreator. 
People, according to their first birth in the world as they exist, do not need better teaching, better resolutions, better education, better financial planning, better relationships, better health, better place to live, better hobbies, better jobs. They need new life. Nicodemus, I am not just a teacher. I am a recreator. And you see, Nicodemus may have been thinking what was the prevailing thought of people of his day, that when the Messiah would come and bring about messianic transformation, that it was to be thought of mainly in institutional and corporate terms. Overthrow the Romans, establish the kingdom, voila, we're all good. It's as if Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, no, 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 no. I'm talking about new people. I'm talking about new folks. I'm not talking about new system. I'm not, I'm not talking about a new nation. I'm talking about starting. Nicodemus, you need this. And who was this man? Friends, if there was ever a man as an example to demolish any notion that human religiosity can merit God's salvation, it's this man. You couldn't have found a better man. According, you, 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 listen to me. Nicodemus was, a be, was outwardly and morally a better man than I was. No doubt. You had to be that way to be in the position that he's in. And Jesus looks at him with all of your religiosity. You must be born again. That's the meaning. It's as if he says, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you don't need new, we don't need new creeds. We need new creatures. We don't need new laws. We need new lives. We don't need new displays of power. We need fresh new people raised from spiritual death. This is why Jesus Christ came, to give this. More on that in just a minute. I'm one of those people, I hope you're like me, I hope and pray you're like me, who really does believe that Christmas is the most wonderful time of, most wonderful time of year. I love Christmas because of just everything that it is, but I really do believe that at Christmas time, the church sings some of her best songs. We call them carols, and listen, they run the risk of being kind of quaint and sentimental, but if you listen to some of those songs, how about this one? Hark the Herald Angels Sings, Glory to the Newborn King. It has this line, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This is why Jesus came. He came so that you could be twice born. Is that attractive to you? Man, I reached a stage where I was fed up with me. Could I change anybody else except for who I am right now? If Christianity offers anything, it offers that. You can change from the top of your head to the soles of your feet from the inside out. You can do it. You don't need new… Look, look, friends, we don't need the gospel to be better people. Have you ever met a a Jehovah's Witness? They're incredibly kind. You don't need… You need the gospel for new life. Don't come into church to try to be a better person. You can go… Other place, I mean, I, Christ, I mean, in general, it's going to mean if you apply the golden rule, you're going to be a good person. But if you want change from the inside out, radical, new, change from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, you have to have the gospel. You, don't, you do not need the gospel just to become a better person. Just go take an online class about how to be successful. But if you want this, you've got to have Christ. That's what he's saying to us. That is what is of necessity. Necessity. Now, this requires a little bit more explanation. Look at what Nicodemus says in verse 4. Look what he says in verse 4. He's going to ask two more questions. The first is in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, 
How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? All right, he's either a stand-up comedian or he's understanding the metaphor, okay? So Nicodemus may, 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 uh, may be in need of spiritual rebirth, but he's no dummy and he knows a metaphor when he sees one, okay? Nicodemus simply cannot mean by this question, he must be asking for some shrinkage of person and for a human to literally become a baby. He, he must understand Jesus is using a metaphor for going all the way back to the beginning and starting fresh, out in the open, what? everything's in front of you from the very beginning again. And Nicodemus is probably thinking something like, Jesus, is this what you're promising? You promise too much. Am I an old man? He calls himself old. We don't know if that, I, I, I think he just means he's an older man. He's, he's 40s, 50s, I don't know. But Jesus, are you promising that a man, once grown, married, established, living his life, Think about that. You have people in your life, you know folks that you were maybe praying for, that they would come to faith in Christ, and they seem so settled. They seem so unable to be moved because they're comfortable and they're happy and everything's set and they've worked hard. It's, that, Nicodemus is saying, are you promising that? Look, it's not a crazy question. Is that kind of change actually possible? Can that happen? I mean, a, you know, a 12-year-old or 13-year-old may, may make more sense. Your, your, your brain's a little more elastic. You're thinking you're not as settled. But it, as a grown man, is that kind of change possible? Yes. Yes. It is. It is. I, there, there are people, we have family members my wife and I pray for. One of them in particular. He's, about, he's, he's 56, 57, I don't know. And he's just living his life. I pray, for, I pray that God would save him. And the moment I'm finished praying, I, 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 just, I just, my default, like the doctor hitting my knee and my leg, just, just my default, my default reaction is, yeah, probably not going to happen. Probably not. Look, look, let this text dispel any thoughts like that. It can happen. It can happen. God can do this. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. Jesus is clearly speaking of something beyond human effort, and so we move into now Jesus giving, starting in verse 4 down to verse 15, further explanation. So we see next the explanation, the explanation. Jesus is going to help us understand what this is and how it happens, what this is and how it happens. And first, Jesus is going to place his emphasis on the Spirit, the Spirit, now, I want you to start with me in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And as I read it, notice the emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind, now that is synonymous with Spirit. It's just a word picture describing the Spirit. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Two observations to make. First, in verse 5, Jesus says, most assuredly, most assuredly, same way he started in verse 3. It's very clear from verse 3 to verse 5, there's a connection. We're not talking about two spiritual births, but one. That's the first thing to notice. He simply adds water and spirit in verse 5. Verse 5 corresponds to verse 3, telling us that there's not two births, but one simply clarified further. But the issue is still the mysterious and instantaneous act of God in which he imparts new life to us, the giving of new life, that regeneration. And who is this work attributed to, particularly in verses 5 to 7? The Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the what? The Spirit is spirit. Flesh can only make more flesh. Spirit makes spirit. Like produces like. Elephants give birth to elephants. Kangaroos give birth to kangaroos. Humans give birth to humans. Flesh makes more flesh. By saying that flesh makes more flesh and spirit makes more spirit, Jesus is intending to dispel any thought from our minds that any kind of new life or spiritual transformation is produced by any amount of human effort. The flesh cannot do this. If you want flesh, if you start with flesh, you get more flesh. This is about spirit. It's about the spirit. And we cannot finally understand this any more than we can finally understand the workings of the wind, verse 8. I, I don't understand the wind. I mean, I, mean, I understand, like, I mean, I know, I know that I can turn on the weather channel and they tell me, like, basic meteor, meteorology, that there's a cold front coming in from sea, even if I explain it. I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, so, cold front, oh, oh, interesting. I don't know. I can't, look, you can't, you can't even see wind, but you can always see its effects. So it is with the new birth. You may not be able to see the wind. You may not be able to make sense of how all this works, but you cannot deny its results. Think of the awful storms we've had here since January. What can you deny of the power of the wind? On Tuesday night when that brief storm came through at about 7, 30, 8 o'clock, we had this big birch tree in our backyard. Man, it was like that thing was just going to do a 360-degree turn. The branches were just, just touching, the, touching the ground. The wind was so strong. So it is with the wind. And this inclusion of water in verse 5, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, Jesus assumes Nicodemus ought to be familiar with what he's saying in this passage. He says that in verse 10. He actually gets on to him pretty hard in verse 10 because he says, you ought to know this. So what's he talking about when he says water and Spirit? That's the big question. Is he talking about baptism? I don't think so. Is he, talking, is he trying to link it with the first birth and the second birth, like your physical birth, in that there is water involved in the physical birth of a child? I don't think it's that. I think, Nicodem- I think Jesus is referring to those promises of what would happen when the Messiah would come. Namely, that the Messiah would come, complete his work, send his spirit, and by his spirit, clean his people up and empower them to obey him. Clean them up and empower them to obey him. I think Jesus is referring with water to the promise of Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. So important. uh, These verses are going to be on the screen. You can look there in your Bible if you would like. I'm going to quote from them and show you how I think it is. Clues from the text that I think this is what Jesus means when he says water and the Spirit. Ezekiel 36. We'll start in verse 22. They're on the screen or you can look in your Bible. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your, for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my own holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Verses 24 to 27, notice. For I will take you from among the nations, I will gather you out of all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take out your heart of stone. This is salvation. Take out your heart of stone. What's a, how much life does a stone have? None, none. 
and put in a heart of flesh and give a new heart, a heart of flesh, verse 27. Here's the empowerment, cleansing in verse 25, empowerment in verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and, keep, and cause you to keep all my judgments. Cleansing, a new heart empowered to obey, that's the new birth. He washes away all our guilty stains. He empowers us to live. He gives us a new heart. What's the new heart have? Life. It's alive. Before you were dead. That means you, 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 you trust, we trust in Christ, and then we're, we, we, come out, we come out of that into the, into the world with new tastes, with new sensibilities, with new, with, new, with new affections. He begins to reorder what we love. We have new loves, new longings, new desires. Friends, if you've trusted in Christ and your primary longings and desires and what you want hasn't fundamentally changed from the core, then you have serious questions to ask because you cannot deny the effect of a new heart. It will produce new longings and new affections. That's part of its work. This must be what he means. So first is the Spirit. Second part of the explanation, the how is the Son, the Son. Verse 9, Nicodemus is still clueless. Nicodemus answered him and said, how can these things be? So Jesus shifts. The dialogue becomes a monologue. There's a shift from the Spirit to the Son, and he shifts from speaking about the new birth as a witness and as a teacher to speaking about himself as the cosmic and transcendent Son of Man from Daniel 7, who will bring these things about and who makes it possible. Jesus answered and said to him, verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel when you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, and how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Let's stop right there. Essentially, in verses 11 and 12, Jesus tells Nicodemus, I've taken you as far as I can take you. I, I would long Nicodemus to go on to speak about the heavenly things, the transcendent things, the things that are virtually unspeakable, but you couldn't handle it. You can't, you can't handle earthly things, the new birth, which happens here on earth. That is above your understanding. He says in verse 13, no one ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. I have authority to speak on these things, Nicodemus, because I've done, I've done what no one has done. Heaven is my home, and I've left it. I am the exclusive and unique Son of Man whose home is in heaven and who will return there one day. And so he essentially stops. And it's as if he looks right at Nicodemus. And he turns in verses 14 and 15. And he does what you and I are called to do. And he does, like I said at the beginning, essentially, and what will happen in the rest of the chapter, he evangelizes Nicodemus. Look at verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I've used all kinds of passages and tools to share the good news of Jesus with, with other people. John 3.16, which we'll come to next week. Romans chapter 5, the Romans road. But I, I have to tell you, I have never used to tell someone about Jesus Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. But that's what Jesus is referencing in verses 14 and 15. Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9 where God's people are in the wilderness, complaining about their accommodations, wishing they could go back to Egypt, God to discipline them since snakes, poisonous snakes among them, many of them are bitten and are died and die. The people go to Moses, their mediator, and say, please pray to God, we have sinned, please help us. And God tells Moses, okay, construct a bronze serpent, 
set it up on a pole, put it in the middle of the camp, and anyone who looks at it will live. And so Jesus says, just as that serpent is lifted up in the wilderness, every time, every time we see this language of lifted up in the Bible, every time we see it, especially in John's gospel, it's used four times, it always refers to Jesus' death, his lifting up on the cross. We could spend hours, friends, drawing the connection between Jesus and this (laughs) obscure account, which Nicodemus had to have known from Numbers 23, the point being that just as those people looked at that serpent and were healed, so we look at Christ and are healed from the poison of sin in our hearts. That's the gospel goodness. That's how you, Jesus clearly wants us to see the whole Bible's about me. It's a whole other lesson. But he says, if you look, if you look and you believe, you have eternal life. How does the new birth come about? How does the new life happen? If you were to say to me, the most obvious question, how can I be born again? My response would not be, wait for the wind to blow. My response would be, look and live. Look to Christ and live. Simply look. Look to him there, hanging on the cross, so that the poison of sin in our hearts can be healed. As he takes it, he sucks all the poison of sin out of our hearts on the cross so that we can be forgiven of all of it. This is what God has done. Notice how the language shifts from new birth in verse 15 to having eternal life, and it just picks up again in the rest of the chapter. We do not see again the language of new birth in John chapter 3. We see everlasting life. The point, new birth is to have eternal life. The new birth means eternal life. The two are in connection. They match. They're congruent. And the ground of all of it, the ground of the new birth, is the work of the Son of Man, telling us to look and telling us to live. This is why Jesus came. Now, I know, I know of no better testimony of the simplicity of looking and living than the, than the conversion of Charles Spurgeon, British preacher from the 1800s, I'm not going to read all of it for the sake of time. Just listen. This is him becoming a Christian, and it can happen to you right here and right now. Spurgeon is about 16 years old. It's January 6th, 1850. Sometimes I think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people, The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me, and ye be saved, all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He goes on to say what this preacher said. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began like this, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting a foot or a finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking into yourselves. It's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. Now look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. The grace of the new birth is our seeing Christ lifted up. Then the man followed up his text in this way, look unto me, 
talking, he's speaking as of Christ. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When at great, when he had gone about at great length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so at the end of his tether, then he looked at me in the gallery And I dare say, with so few people present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me, as if with all of his heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Well, I did, but I was not accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit of my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. I continued, he continued, you will always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death. You, listen. It will cost you to trust in and follow Jesus. It will cost you far more to not trust in Jesus. It will cost you hell. If you don't obey my text, obey it now and be saved. Lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do. He's hard on this guy. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Look at... They looked at, that's, that's, this is chapter 14 and 15, or verses 14 and 15. Look, I did not take much notice of what else he said. I was possessed with the one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. So many people are just, tell me what to do. Look. What a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, Spurgeon says, I could have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ, of simple faith which looks to him alone, and now I can say, ere since faith I saw the stream that flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Friends, I have two questions for us as we close two questions. The first is this, do I understand the new birth? We started with questions like, can a person change? Is change really possible? Deep, lasting, fundamental, from the top of your head to the soles of your feet kind of change. Is that possible? Are you fed up with yourself knowing that a new resolution is not going to do it, a new course won't do it, a new book won't do it, a new relationship won't do it? All you're doing is moving around the flesh in different places. What kind of change is necessary? This change, the new birth. And friends, part of what we must do as a church, those of us who claim Grace Church is home, is an eagerness to dispel any thoughts. What makes us a church, what will keep us faithful to Christ in our generation, is dispelling any notion from our mind that people are basically good and decent and that all this talk about being born again and converted and saved is really awkward and unnecessary. It is the only thing necessary. Our purpose as a church is to guard the gospel. Every church you know of that is empty now. There, I, I, I was just in Europe. Churches everywhere demolished. Or they're, muse- they're mausoleums now. They're museums. They have no life. There's no new birth. They forgot. They dri- uh, dri- Listen, you don't fall off this cliff. You drift. Oh, maybe hell's not that serious. Oh, maybe sin's not that serious. No, 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 no. We hit the pedal hard on all of that. We go zero to 60 on all of that stuff. Guys, we have to. We have to. 
If we want a vibrant gospel witness, do we understand this? Why should we believe Jesus? Friends, no one has, no one has done what Jesus has done. No one has ascended but he who has descended. That's how we ought to believe him. Second question is this. Have I experienced the new birth? Have I experienced the new birth? Your, your testimony can be Spurgeon's testimony. It seems so obvious to sit here and to look at you, to, look, to say, look and live. Look and live. It doesn't take, you don't, you don't have to do 50 things. You can have the gaze of faith and look to Christ. I'd like you to just bow your head and let's just, be, just get quiet for just a couple of minutes. And I want to lead us into a time of response. So we're asking the question, do I understand the new birth and am I willing to guard it? Do I see the effects of it in my own life? And then we're asking, have I experienced it? Have I experienced it? You say, I don't know. Look and live. Look and live. Jesus Christ, friends, is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord God Almighty based upon the things he says to us and the demands that he makes. He is one of those three. He's either a liar, which makes him not a good man. He's out of his mind, which means we should not trust him, or he is exactly who he says he is. And so I just want to ask if perhaps you would like to look and live where you did it while Christ was explained. You can just raise your hand. I'm not gonna get, I won't linger for too long. You can just raise your hand. Or you just want to know more. Wonderful. You just want to know more. Look and live, friends. Look and live. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, pray that you would take these truths and plant them deep within us. Pray that you would shape and fashion us in your likeness. I pray that we would guard. I pray that we would know what we need to know and experience what we need to experience. Perhaps this word is chiseling away. All of our experiences are not the same. Some people, this, new, this, this salvation, it, I knew exactly when, and some of us, I don't know exactly when. I just know now that I, I trust in Christ. It's all by your grace, and it's all grounded in the finished work of the Son of Man, in whom we give glory and thanks. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray now that as we go, that we would go in the joy of the gospel, in the goodness of the gospel, and in all that we have in King Jesus. In his great name we pray, and everyone said, Amen, friends.